Was that Steve Green? I can't remember who did that originally. Was it Steve Green? He had some great songs. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm going to honestly tell you it's good to be standing in front of you again. I was at a camp meeting last week, which is always a nice diversion, but uh, I like my routines. I like what I do, so I'm glad to be back here. I know that uh, there was a great weekend, a great Sabbath last week with the uh, focus on women's ministries that Ida and her team put together, so I really appreciate that. But I'm glad to be back here. I'm going to talk today about Solomon. Solomon is a very interesting man. Uh, I'm not sure if the Bible says it in these words, but everybody always says that he was the wisest man who ever lived. Um, God told Solomon he could have anything he wanted. That's quite an offer, isn't it? That's a genie in a bottle kind of thing. And so Solomon asks for a mind or a heart, the word is translated both ways, mind or heart, of discernment or wisdom. So he, he asks for wisdom. So I've been thinking about wisdom and how much I lack of it and how much more I want it. And I was thinking about how different wisdom is from knowledge. And I looked it up in 1 Corinthians, uh, yeah, Corinthians 12. There's a, a list, one of the lists of the gifts of the Spirit. And knowledge is a separate gift from wisdom. It's not the same thing, of course. I, in my own simplified way, think that knowledge is facts and wisdom is making sense of all those facts and creating meaning. Wisdom creates meaning. Knowledge is just facts. But it made me think, in thinking about the difference between knowledge and wisdom, about men, being a man myself. Men often have knowledge, but we don't always have wisdom, especially with women, dating, marriage. So as a public service to men, who are, or men who are married, or you young guys who are thinking about marrying someday, or you're engaged, whatever the case may be. I, as the pastor, one of my duties is to keep you informed about these kind of things. So I offer up to you this hopeful list. And men, I'll have this on the internet later so you don't have to take notes. So you can be smart, men, but also have wisdom. And I call this the five deadly terms used by a woman. Men. When a woman says to you that things are fine, when you go, how are, how are you, is that okay? And he goes, yeah, fine. She doesn't mean it. Fine is the word that women use to end an argument when she knows that she is right and you, the man, need to shut up. When a woman says nothing, as in, is everything okay? Is anything wrong? And she goes, no, nothing. Nothing doesn't mean nothing. Nothing means something. And you need to be worried and maybe even pack a bag. Or get a blanket and a pillow for the couch. When a woman says, go ahead. Like if a man says, can I go golfing for the third time this month? And she goes, yeah, go ahead. This phrase is a dare 
Not permission, so don't do it. When a woman says, whatever, this is a woman's way of saying, I had to clean this up, to heck with you. When a woman says, that's okay, that means she is thinking long and hard on how and when you will pay for your mistake. She is patient, and she can wait until the right time. And as a bonus word, when a woman says to her man, wow, wow, this is not a compliment at how great you are. This term is a term of amazement that one person could be so stupid. That's my public service announcement to make the men here a little bit wiser, perhaps, with your manslation. You see, this is a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is hearing the words, fine, wow, uh, nothing, go ahead. Wisdom is knowing what they mean. Wisdom is making sense of this world and its higher purpose. And even though Solomon is considered the wisest man who ever lived, and he asked God for wisdom instead of stuff, he still in his life made some really dumb, foolish mistakes. I guess ultimately because he's a human. It's, it's uh, quite vexing. And next week I'll talk some more about another chapter in Solomon's life. Because as we continue this, and I know some of you are doing it, we're walking through the Word in 2018, reading through the Bible week by week, preaching through the Bible to correlate to those passages. This time we come to the end of first, or we come to the, the book, First Kings, and the end of King David's life. King David was a, another interesting character. He had wanted to build the temple for the Lord. He had asked God if he could build the temple, but he had been told that he would not be able to build it because he was a warrior and had spilled blood. He wasn't a man of peace. And so the task, he was told, would fall to his son Solomon, and Solomon's name actually means peace. So the man of peace, Solomon, was to be the one who would be the next king and build the temple for the Lord. In the first Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, it says, When David's time to die came near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. So be strong and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in His ways and keeping His statutes, His commandments, His rules, and His testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish His word that He spoke concerning me, saying, if your son pays close attention to his ways, to walk before me in faithfulness with all his heart and with all his soul, then you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. In other words, David, you're going to die, but your son, if he will just stick to me and follow me, he's going to be the one who will build the temple. He's going to be a faithful man who can serve me. 
So Solomon was anointed and proclaimed king even while David was still alive in the closing years of his father David's life who gave up the throne early. God's purpose was that Solomon might grow in his strength and he might grow in glory. He might approach the character of God as he stayed close to God and inspire his people to fulfill their sacred trust as the people of God. And David knew that for his son Solomon to fulfill the trust with which God was pleased to honor him, this youthful leader must not be a warrior or a statesman or a ruler, but a strong, good man, a teacher of righteousness, an example of fidelity to following God. And then it says, David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. So David is laid to rest. He reigned for 40 years. And now the throne is Solomon's. So if you would turn in your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 3. I'm going to read a little bit before the passage that my friend Kim rang. Rang. What am I saying rang? Read. Is it all right to read my Bible in church? I was gone a week. I thought maybe you changed your mind, and it's not all right. But I'm glad to know it's still all right. 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. When you find it, could you say, Amen, preacher? Could you say, I'm listening to you, preacher? Could you say, I'm not talking to my neighbor's preacher? All right, because I'm looking out there, and I'm seeing a lot of people talking. And you must realize this isn't TV, that I can see you. This isn't you sitting on a couch with your popcorn, like, Change the channel. I don't like what this guy's saying. Mute the commercials. I can see you. It's a dialogue. It's not that we're both talking, but we're interacting, you see. All right. Don't make me come out there. I've been doing push-ups. I could take on a couple of you if I got to pick which ones they were. All right. I love you guys. 1 Kings chapter 3, verses uh, 5. Where am I? At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon. Isn't that something? The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness in righteousness and in uprightness of heart toward you. I think all the things that David did, I'm like, is Solomon missing something here? And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. He's talking about himself. And although I am but a little child, we don't know how old he was, but that's interesting he would say that, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. Some of them say right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people? It's a very humble 
speech that he's making. He asks for an understanding mind or an understanding heart. He knows that more than anything, what he needs to live and to grow is to be able to understand the world through God, to connect God to his people with wisdom. He wants to be able to know and to care about what's really important in this world. The inner mind, the heart. He wants to be able to distinguish between right and wrong and good and evil. And so God gives him this gift of wisdom so that he could discern these things. What a wonderful gift to have that he could see something greater than himself. And that's what people with wisdom can do is they can see the big picture and they can see it's not just about what I want or what you want. It's about what would be best for the situation, for the people. So I want you to consider that question. If you could ask God for anything, what would it be? Now, my most humblest, most pastoral woman, I would like to think that I would ask for peace on the world and you know, wisdom and those kind of things. But there's a part of me that would like to have like $5 million or $10 million while I'm at it. $20 million. Let me have $20 million. I'll help out. I'll redo the church. You know, I'll pay off my loan and all these things. I'll help out other young people that have loans. That... Anybody here got any student loans? Mm-hmm, yes. I'm seeing the hand. See, now we're ready to do church because you've seen your need. Yes, preacher, let's pray for $20 million. I'd like to think I'd ask God for wisdom. Maybe I would. Maybe I wouldn't. Oftentimes it comes down to this simple statement. Do we think about ourselves or do we think about others? Do we think about me or do we think about we? You know, if you're going to put it in very simple terms. It's a question that faces all of us every day as we pray, as we make decisions, as we establish priorities, as we live our lives. Do we live insulated, isolated lives as individuals or are we connected to other people around us? Are we interdependent? You see, me, saying me doesn't just have to mean me as a person. It could be me and the group that I'm a part of. It could be me as my family, me as a church, me as my business. So me or we, are we doing what's best for us, me, or are we doing what's best for we? The world is a decision that uh, a church or a religion or a political party or a corporation or a nation could make? Are you dreaming of something that benefits everybody? So we've probably all played that if you could ask God for anything game, but it's not that simple because it's really not a game at all. It's real life and it's real death. So God's question comes with a dilemma and Solomon's answer carries profound consequences. He says, I'll give you anything. And Solomon says, I would like to have a discerning heart so that I can tell right from wrong, so that I can know you, God. And because I know you, I can be a good king to the people. That's a really open heart. And God says, well, because you ask for that instead of all this other stuff, I'm going to give you this stuff too. So he gets the car and the TV and, all, and the horses and the chariots and the palace and all of those things because he asked God, for the most important thing, which was an understanding heart, a heart of wisdom. And this, this came to him in a dream, which I'd never realized until I read this again, that this whole thing happened to him in a dream. 
It doesn't mean it wasn't real. It just means it happened to him in his most intimate, private moments when he was totally alone with God. And so if you ask God in your private moments for the most private things, that's probably what really is on your heart. Because we're often unaware of the choices that we make between me and we unless we've had those moments close with God. Because when disruptions occur, when something throws our life off balance, something that challenges us or troubles us or frightens us, we almost always begin to say, well, what will I do about this? How does this affect me? What am I going to do? How am I going to respond to this? And in some way, the main question should be, what is best for all of us, not what's just best for me? You see, that's how Jesus lived. He didn't live for himself. He lived for others. He wasn't a me, me, me person, because if he was, he probably wouldn't have come to earth in the first place, and he would have done his own thing. So what about us? Is it awareness and response that's limited to me, or is it an awareness of what's best for everybody? So look at the world today. Read the news. Reflect on your own relationships. If there is a conflict in your life, it is probably because you or the person that you have conflict with are thinking more about yourself, me, rather than we, what would be best for all. Now, not always, but sometimes. If you look in the the world around us, the global conflicts, such as the, the conflicts around the world, like the Palestinians and the Israelites. It's two people who are both single-minded about what they want rather than what can we do best to live together in this one plot of land that we both want. Think about the, the conflicts in our own country about immigration and borders. This is a matter of some people saying it's about me, we're thinking like this, and it's some people saying we should think about we. And so we need to apply wisdom to those things. We see it when we talk about things like gay rights or kneeling in protest during the national anthem. There's all these prejudice and all this discrimination as well as the hardened moral positions that some people have against other people just because of who they are. So if we think about ourselves, we're going to see things one way. If we, see, if we think of the big picture, we're going to perhaps see it another way. And it's not just global issues. The choice between me and we exists in the marriage. It exists in families. We want what we want, and it affects the quality of our home. Look for any conflict between a husband and a wife, or brothers and sisters, or two people that are dating, or any conflict in the church, and you will find that you see somebody thinking primarily of themselves and not of what's best for everybody. Now, I'm not suggesting that thinking of we instead of me fixes every conflict, ends every war, or settles every debate, because it won't. It's not that simple. But it does, however, change the way we approach conflict and the way we look at things in the world, the way we look at debates, the way we look at wars, the way we look at conflict even in the church, because it opens our mind, our hearts, and our wills to consider more than just ourselves. It creates new possibilities and options about awareness and concerns that includes everybody. So that's what Solomon asked for. 
He longed to govern and to care for God's people, and he wanted the ability to discern between good and evil and right and wrong. And he recognized that this me attitude could not sustain the kingdom. So he calls himself a little child. He says, I don't know how to go in or to go out. So his concern was not just for himself. He says, I don't know how to do this on my own. I'm just a little child. I don't know what he meant by that. I don't know if he was a teenager or he's just saying, in my mind, I need you, Lord. So he, the, the me attitude is the child attitude and the we attitude is that he wants to be a man. He wants to grow up. He says, this is too big for me on my own. Lord, I need you. If I'm going to be the king of Israel, I need you. And so that shift from thinking about yourself to thinking about others is not easy. It means you must let go of old ways. It, must, it means you must let go of old patterns that don't work. It must mean that you suspend judgments and redirect your attention to a future that can be better as we all work together. It opens up your mind and your room and your wallet to including other people. And the shift from thinking about me to thinking about we happens when you first, within you, allow God to come in and to convert you. To be changed from the inside out. If you're looking at other people and wishing they would change, I would say let the change start with you first. Because you have never been able in any way in this world to control anybody but yourself. And one of the things that struck me when I became married, we are going to be married uh, 35 years in a couple months, and it probably took me 25 years to realize that I could not change her. I tried. Lord knows I tried. Where do you think I got that list of words from? And it took me about 15 years to realize I could not change my children, my two sons. When they're little, you can, you know, you tell them what to do. Can I have another piece of candy? No, you've already had one. You know everything that they do, everything they eat, everywhere they go. You can know you can't. You remember last week you had a piece of candy and now you're going to visit their friends and they go to other people's homes. Almost you realize you, you didn't control those last two hours because they were at somebody else's house. And then, then they start going out and you go, where are you going? And then they're driving the car and you go, what are you doing? And you don't know where they are or what they're doing. You can't control them. And then they get older like my kids, you know, they're in their 20s, and all at once you think, well, maybe you should do this. And all at once you're, you're just suggesting things, and you're, you're hoping that they listen to your... But you can't control them. Anybody know that with their kids? You notice that? Can I get an amen? Mm -hmm. Any student loans I should be paying off today? Mm -hmm. My 20000000 million I'm going to ask God for? You can't control them. If I ask you to stand up and draw a little circle around yourself and stand inside that circle, everything that's in that circle, you can control. And everything that's outside that circle, you can't control. You can influence it, but you can't control it. So you just remember, I can't change anybody. I can only change me. So I'm going to ask God, change me. Change my heart, O oh Lord. Isn't that a song we sing? Change my heart, O oh Change me so that I become a better, in my case, a better man. 
Make me the man you want me to be so that I can do what you've called me to do. Let me serve you with this wise and discerning heart. Give me that which I can't get on my own. Because I'm just a child. And so as I change, then I realize I can't affect anybody but me, but I can try, I can talk, I can share, I can encourage. And so if we had a church full of converted people, and I'm not saying you aren't, I'm not saying that, I'm saying if we had a church full of converted people, think of what we could do. We could affect all of the church, all of the homes, all of the places you work, all of the publics you shop at, all of the schools you go to, all of Pooler, all of Savannah, and people might know that Seventh-day Adventists are Bible-based, Christ-loving people instead of those odd people. You know, I don't know if I ever told you this. When I told my mom, who's not, my mom's Jewish, didn't know anything about Adventists, and I told her I was marrying a Seventh-day Adventist because she never met Vonnie till two days before our wedding. But that's a whole other story. And I told my mom on the phone I was getting married and I was marrying a Seventh-day Adventist. And she goes, what? Those people don't eat meat. That's all she knew. And that's probably all she cared about because my mom made a wonderful pot roast. And it's not even true, of course, that Adventists don't eat meat. A lot of Adventists eat meat. I'm probably going to go to lunch at your house today. We're going to have meat. And that's fine. But see, that's what my mom thought. How did I get talking about that? Where am I in my notes? Change, thank you. If you want to make the world a better place, you've got to take a look at yourself and make a change. As St. Michael once said. So if you want to change anybody, change yourself. So what does this shift look like from thinking about me, small world, to we, big world, a world based on wisdom? A me life is one of power, domination, and control. You know anybody in your world that tries to dominate you, control you, or power, power struggles, passive-aggressive? I hate that one. Do things, they won't do things because you ask them to do it. A, a me life is one of power, domination, and control. A we life is one of being vulnerable and intimate and self-sacrificing. A me life is characterized by selfishness, frenzied reaction, and isolation. A we life is characterized by peace, calmness, presence, being there, being transparent, being open, being real. A me life is filled with doubt, cynicism, and fear. A we life is filled with faith, hope, and love. A me life clings tightly to the past. A we life embodies what might be in the future. A me life draws lines that divide people. It thrives on conflict. A we life draws circles and encompasses people and makes people feel welcome. So Solomon can say, Lord, give me this spirit so that I can govern these people. These are your people, God, and they're my people. And because they're your people, they are my people, and I want to govern these people. So give me what I need to govern them. 
And I would say that that's the same thing that we need. We need to remember that we stand before God in the attitude and in the position of needing God's presence. Because your position in the church or in your family doesn't give you holiness. It's, it's something that you need to ask God for. And yet we see this man, Solomon, so full of humanity at this point, saying, God, I need you. And yet within three chapters in this book, because this in 1 Kings, this is chapter 3, and then we read through chapter 9 or 10 this week. Chapter 9, my heading says, The Lord appears to Solomon. Uh, chapter 10, the Queen of Sheba. Chapter 10, the next part, Solomon's great wealth. Chapter 11, Solomon turns from the Lord. How does that happen? How does the man who's asking God for wisdom in chapter 3, by chapter 11 of the same book, Solomon's turning from God? Because he is at his heart and at his base, he is a human being. He is a fallen human being. So we look to him and we say, I want to be like those good qualities you have. I want to be connected to God like you were, Solomon. I don't want to do those other things. I don't want to have 700 wives and 300 porcupines or all those things that he said. I don't want to have 10,000 chariots. I don't need all that. I just need this one thing. I need to be connected. And everything else that you give me, I will use to your honor and glory. To the point that the same man, Solomon, who wrote, he organized and collected the Proverbs, and he wrote the book of Song of Solomon, and he wrote the book. This man who had everything, Ecclesiastes says, you know, it's vanity. It's like the same word in vanity is translated like smoke or vapor. It's like something that appears to be there, but it's really not there. He says, it's all vanity, vanity of vanity. It's all, all of these things that I thought were something aren't anything. They're all just, I'm grasping at ropes of sand. And so for you, it might be, you know, money or position or something. You, you think it's worth something. And then you find out it's not worth anything. You know, there's two... Uh, Two semi-famous people that killed themselves this week, Kate Spade and An Anthony, I don't know how he says his last name, Bordeaux or something. They both, you know, they both killed themselves because that's how low a person can sink. You know, mental illness and, and these things are, are very real. And I'm not, I'm not trying to lecture or preach about them. I don't know them at all, and I'm sad for them and their fans and their friends and their family. I'm just saying that the appearance of things isn't always what it is. But if something, if all things are transient, if all things go except for God, then let's cling to that one thing which is real. You know, people might say to you as a Christian, well, you're living in some sort of fantasy world. You believe that there's a God and he's going to come, he's going to save you. That's a fantasy. Well, if everything that they believe in, let's say they believe in money and all these things, if all those things are going to be in the end gone and the one thing that's left is God, then really, then they're living in the fantasy world. They're the ones who are believing in something that's not going to be there someday and you're clinging to the one thing that will be there. Never will I leave you or forsake you, God says. So let's ask for that one thing which never leaves us or forsakes us, which is God himself. 
Let's let all these other things, let's, let's use them through God's honor and glory. It's nothing wrong with, you know, having a nice house or a nice car. Something, just know that it's not going to last. It's just a bucket of your car. It's really just a bucket of bolts. Oh, you might have paid thirty or forty or fifty or sixty thousand for it, but it's a bucket of bolts. If you don't want it, if you're giving it up, I'll take it. <laughs> if I've convicted you that that's wrong, just leave the keys. I'll drive a different car every day. There's nothing wrong with enjoying this world. Just know that this isn't what lasts. So hang on to Jesus. Share the good news. Ask for this gift of wisdom so that at the end, you're not saying like Solomon, it's all vanity. And all that I see is that the, the thing that lasts, he says, is to fear God and keep his commandments. This is the end of the matter. He finally struck on that thing which he had learned way back at the beginning. God. God is the only thing that lasts. God is the only thing that's eternal. God is the only thing that's there. So all these other things, it, it, it's, it's for your benefit to enjoy them, to, to uh, the things, all the beautiful things it says in Ecclesiastes. Ask for the wisdom of God. Be the wisdom of God. Include someone in your thinking other than just yourself. Open your mind up to the possibility of being used by God when you ask Him, fill me with your grace to make this world a better place. Hey, that rhymes. Wouldn't that be a great name for a church? Grace Place? I know there's actually churches out there, but I thought of it first. Grace Place. That's what this church should be. That's what I pray that your home is. That's what I pray that your heart is. A grace-filled place. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, may our hearts be grace-filled places. As Solomon asked for wisdom, Lord, give us that which we need to do your will on this earth. Bless us. Use us. In Christ's name, amen.